Um, I think I skipped the, the opening treatment this morning because I was. Uh, yeah. We're, so let's let's come together in in, the, in this moment. And what I invite you to do is is prepare yourself for prayer. And notice notice your breath. Notice the cave of your heart as we breathe from that cave of the heart, where the living spirit indwells. And as we come together in this beautiful moment, this sacred moment becomes holy because we declare it so. And so I look within and I recognize the one life, that perfect life, spirit's life, and it is my life. And claiming it as my own, each time I choose it, it chooses me. And so I give thanks this day. I give thanks to stand in the remembrance of this day. I give thanks and gratitude and appreciation for all the wonderful music, for all the prayers, the intentional prayers. We teach an intentional faith. Let us come together today, each and every one of us, and for myself as well, in the remembrance of setting my intention in faith and directing my awareness and my consciousness in a way that is powerful and wonderful. And as our beautiful speaker that we've called forth by right of consciousness this day shares with us to be willing to stand in the mystery and understand all is well and all is right. And what, it, what is right and perfect for each one of us to know in each moment is made clear, powerful, and wonderful. So I give thanks. I give thanks for this day, for this opportunity to be with you in prayer and in love. In inspiration, in joy, and celebration, may the laughter we share today ripple out in the world and bless everyone. For this I give thanks, and together we say, and so it is. All right. So what it, it is my great joy, it is my great joy and opportunity to, to um, introduce our speaker today. Um, I, he and I go back a long way. Uh, he was one of my first teachers. He was actually my first official teacher in our, our teaching. Moved in, uh, to Simi Valley in 1987 and first met our, our speaker today. And I wouldn't, I've been with him the last few days, I wouldn't be here with you today um, doing what I'm doing if I hadn't met him at the time I met him. I'd probably be a big famous movie star by now, but I said I couldn't do that. It's not true. Um, anyway, uh, but he's, um, there's so many things I could tell you about him, and I hope one day that uh, I can share with you the story of when he had me dress up as a homeless person and hide in a dumpster outside the front door of the, the facility, and the, the great joy that that created in the community is he used that as a lesson to remind people, judge not by appearance. Anyway, uh, he, has, he did pulpit ministry for 20 years and has been a mover and shaker in our movement, a member of the past board of directors for our movement for a number of years, and helped influence its growth and help bring us back into integration. He is uh, now a published best-selling author. His two books he has with us today, uh, The Art of Being was his first publication, and now The Art of Uncertainty. And uh, they're wonderful books, uh, very simple, as he'll explain to you today, and uh, as well as his wonderful workshop. So please help me welcome to the platform my friend, my mentor, and, my, and a great inspiration in my life, Reverend Dr. Dennis Merritt-Jones. Dr. Running Water, Dancing Waters. I like that. that. 
I like that a lot. I was walking around the room uh, during the beginning of the service, and I just standing in different positions around the room, not like the stations and the cathedrals, but uh, and just uh, allowing myself to experience the energy in the different areas in the room and the collective energy of, of what makes a, a spiritual community come alive and vibrant uh, and that sense of the sacred here. And I really honor you for that. I feel that here, that this is a beautiful facility uh, but it's the consciousness within the facility that makes it a sacred community. And you've done a marvelous job of creating that. And I honor you for having attracted this splendid teacher. He's, you know, he's one of the big mover and shakers in the New Thought Movement now. And, and uh, he's one of those rising meteorites that uh, is, is taking a lot of people with him to a higher place in consciousness. So this community's blessed. I hope you know that. I do know you know that. Yes? And, and you're part of that blessing. You're part of that blessing. So let's get into what we're going to be talking about. What I'm going to talk to you this morning about is really a summary of what our workshop this afternoon is going to be about. The title of uh, my lesson this morning is uh, based on my book, The Art of Uncertainty, which uh, is uh, doing quite well all the way all the way around the world. I'm really been pleased with the the number of people that it's touched because it has gone way beyond the New Thought movement and touching people in the secular movement in, in such a way that our message is getting way out beyond the walls of our churches, which is why one of the reasons I left my spiritual community 27 uh, years, 28 years, 2 months and 14 days and 12 hours ago. But who's counting? You know. <laughs> Nonetheless, the subtitle of the book is really what I want to talk to you about. It's, the subtitle of the book is How to Live in the Mystery of Life and Love it. Now, the fact is we're all living in uncertainty. We're living in a mystery, whether we know it or not or like it or not. Can I get a witness for that? The fact, think about this. This is the most amazing thing to contemplate. We're going to be talking about, a lot about self-contemplation and self-inquiry this morning. We came from the ethers of the great unknown. Who knows what it looks like, where the dimensions that it came from, where we came from. This is the formless. And somehow our soul nature parked itself in this garment, this physical, this garment of flesh and bone, and, it, and, and essentially signed a contract with this garment of flesh and bone that it would use, the soul would use this vessel, which is really nothing more than a carbon-based, biodegradable, disposable unit that it uses until it's done using what it, doing what it came here on the planet to do which is to gather soul-expanding, enriching, evolving experiences so that when it leaves the planet, it leaves here in an evolved, higher expressed state than when it got here. And at the appropriate time when all those lessons and that expansion has happened, it just jettisons the body and goes back into the ethers from which it came. The great unknown. Now, that in itself is a miracle and a mystery. Can I get a witness for that? Uh, the point is that from the time we get here until the time we leave here is no less a mystery. It is no less uncertain. It's just that we pretend it's not. Until, of course, something pops up in front of us that causes us to come to the edge of change, of uncertainty in our lives, and all of a sudden uh, we, we react to it. So my, my, the, my point is this. There's no place in our lives... Where, there, where there's not uncertainty that exists. In our relationships, in our careers, in, our, in the economy, look what's going on around the planet. There's just a tremendous amount of I don't know going on. Can I get a witness for that? Yeah. 
So the, the, the point is, it affects every area of our lives. And the fact that we have the opportunity to become conscious in the mystery changes the entire dynamics of it. How do we do this? How do we make peace with the uncertainty in our life in a way that we become co-creators with the mystery rather than victims of it? We change our perception. We can choose to see the mystery, the uncertainty in our lives, through the eyes of a mystic. What is the root word for mystery? Mystique. The word mystery comes from, from mystic. And so the question is, what is a mystic? A mystic is someone, Ernest Holmes tells us, that perceives beyond the veil of the five senses, the five-sensory world, and perceives an intelligence that guides him or her, that leads him or her into the depths of life in, in a sense where there's faith, where there's trust, and there's conviction, and knowing that there's something larger than he or her guiding them on their journey. Yes? Now, here's the truth. We're all mystics. Raise your hand if you're a mystic. Come on, everybody. You don't have a choice. You're on the planet. You're a mystic, yes? Yes. Here, that's the good news. Now, here's the other news. Some of us are optimistics. Some of us are pessimistics. Which would you be? Here, here's the metaphor. We're standing on the edge. Let's say the stage here is the edge of uncertainty. And I have no idea what's out here. Would you rather be holding the hand of an optimist or a pessimist? <laughs> of course, an optimist. You would, wouldn't you? Of course, the optimist is looking up. The pessimist is looking down. I said last service, you know, the definition of a pessimist is that's somebody who crosses a one-way street and looks both ways before they cross. So you're standing on the edge of your uncertainties, and, and the pessimist is saying, don't, don't, don't lean over. My God, you could lose everything. Don't go beyond what you know because it's crazy out there. You, don't, you could lose everything. It's just stay within the, the lines, color within the lines of what we teach you. Don't go too far out because you could lose everything. And, of course, the optimist is saying what? Come to the edge. No, lean over. There's something within you that knows how to take you what is next. That's what an optimist looks for, is looking up, not down. Now, the reality of the matter is, is that we were all born optimists. Look at a young child. They're fearless. They, they, if you've ever had a two-year-old, you know that you have to continually reel them back in because they're out exploring, Yes? They'll go off and they'll explore. And, and so we reel them back in over and over and over again. And over a period of years, what's the message they get? It's not safe out there. Do color within the line. Stay within this box where I tell you to stay and you're going to be fine. And so what happens is we end up living a life of sameness. And we walk back and forth on this pathway of sameness. And what happens the more you walk back and forth on the same pathway? That's a question. This is audience participation. <laughs> what happens? It gets deeper and deeper, and it becomes a rut, yes? And if it gets deep enough, you know what a rut is, right? It is a grave with no ends on it. 
And sometimes that's where we exist. And I would propose to you that living things that thrive and grow do not do so in ruts. Ernest Holmes referred to the creative divine urge, which is this life force that lives within us. It lives within all living things, and it continually is pushing out. It's expressing. It's pushing out. If it had words, it would say, I've got to be more tomorrow than I was yesterday. Take a look at any living thing. Look at your fingernails. Look at your hair. Look at the plants. Look at things in nature. You'll see it's pushing out. That's the nature of the universe. It's expanding at the speed of light. But we resist that. We go unconscious of that. Which then puts us in peril. Ernest Holmes gives us the opposite, the polar opposite of the complement of, of the creative divine urge, which is the universal imperative. Do you know what that is? Take a breath. Grow or die. Grow or die. If you're not growing, there's some aspect of you that's beginning to wither up. If your relationships do not grow and evolve, there's some aspect of your relationships that begin to wither up and die. If your spiritual community does not grow, it's a living, breathing thing. The same thing, it'll wither up and die. If the new thought movement does not grow, everything that's, that has a life force in it, and it's not just human bodies that have life force, collective consciousness within organizations and your careers, everything that's not growing eventually is withering up and beginning to die. And so the question is, how do, you, how do you evolve from that rut, from, from that place of not growing? Have you ever seen a potted plant that was root-bound? What's going on with that? It's dying because what? The roots are turning in on themselves and choking itself off, yes? Yeah. And what happens the minute you repot the plant in a bigger pot or put it in a bigger hole in the ground? What happens? The roots turn outward again, yes? And what happens? The plant... The life force surges through that plant and it thrives. Why? Because it's back on purpose. Living things on purpose grow. Here's the metaphor. Folks, some of us need to be repotted. So, so if, if you look to nature, you'll see how, unfortunately, the, the way that the repotting happens is one of two ways. We're either brought to the edge of our uncertainties where growth happens, either through inspiration or desperation. Most of us wait for, de- for desperation. We're pushed by pain rather than pu- by being inspired and pu- pulled by knowing there's something more for, us to, more for us to be. We're here on this planet to continue to grow and evolve. Most of us wait until we're pushed to the edge when change is forced upon us rather than being called to a higher place to express it. Yes? If we look to nature, we'll see how this happens and how nature knows, the wisdom within nature knows how to lean into that, that, that mystery. Uh, I shared with last, last service, and this is actually a story in the book, where um, in our home in Simi Valley, we, we back up to the wild space, the open area where there's creatures and critters and hills behind us. And every summer or every spring, a, a family of sparrows will come under and they'll, underneath the patio awning They'll build a nest up on a ledge. And they do it, they've done it year, for years and years. Several years ago, I had the p- privilege and the pleasure of watching the birds actually come, build the nest, have the eggs, l- sit on the eggs, hatch the eggs. And I was there in the kitchen that morning at the bay window watching 10 feet away when the ch- chicks decided it was time to leave the nest. And this is a metaphor for our lives that you must understand applies to us. The first chick comes out of the nest. He steps out of the nest... He comes prancing up to the edge, 
And he's prancing back and forth on the edge of the, the, the ledge of the patio awning, looking down. And he stand, comes to the edge, look at this, he's, straight, he's flapping his wings. First time, can you imagine, never having had to use these things before, all of a sudden you realize they're there for some reason? You know? And the bird looked over. Looked up like this. And swear to God, his eyes went... And I don't read birdies, I don't speak birdies, but if I did, I'm pretty sure he'd be saying, holy cow, <laughs> that's a long way down. But you know what he did? He pranced he, back and forth for a minute, and then he kind of leaned into the, over the edge, he started flapping his wings violently, I think intentionally to throw himself off balance. And he fell into the call of gravity, fell off the ledge, and he, audience participation time. He flew! Absolutely right. It was an amazing thing. He flew around underneath the patio for one lap, and then he went out and landed on the avocado uh, tree in one of the uh, trees in the grove and just sat there, chirping away. Second bird came out, did the exact same thing, leaned over, flapped his wings, fell into the call of gravity, flew, went out and landed with his sibling on the uh, avocado branch. Third one, exact same thing. Fourth one comes out, and he was about half the size of the others because I'm sure he was sitting on the bottom of the nest all that time. He comes out, does the same thing, he flaps his wings, he looks down like this, and he looks up like this, and he turns, and he comes back in the nest and, and, and hangs out in the nest. He sits there for about 10 minutes, and all the, the, the siblings are out in the, ch- the orchard chirping away, you know, giving their little birdie high fives, just happy that they made it to that next step. Finally, this little guy jumps out of the nest and just comes up to the edge and launches, doesn't even think about it. Just jumps into the void, flaps his wings, and he 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 did bump into the walls around underneath the patio cover. He did because he was a little uncertain. But he got his wings and he flew around and landed out in the avocado grove with the rest of the birds. There they sat for a couple of minutes, chirping away, celebrating, and then together in unison they launched as one group, collective group, and they did a victory lap around the avocado, this acre, large acre avocado grove, and then were off into the ethers of their birddom to explore exactly what they came here to be. Birds. Now I have to tell you something. Not once in that entire thing with the birds on the ledge did I see the parents around anywhere. The mother was not saying, standing next to the babies, going, okay, honey, flap your wings, trust, lean over, just say your positive affirmations and know that everything's going to be fine. No! There was something within the bird that knew how to fly. All the bird had to do was come to the edge and be what he came here to be. And that within him that knew how to fly did what it knows how to do. The metaphor is this, my friends. If the beloved great one would imbue that intelligence, capability, strength, faith in a bird, do you not believe that it has been imbued in you in even far greater ways? Metaphorically, when we know we come to the edge and we listen and we know that there is that within us that knows how to take us to what is next, 
And yet we have a role to play. And that is what I want to talk to you about. That's actually what our workshop this afternoon about is about, is do, really leaning into these three questions I'm going to give you right now that will help you understand how, when do you come to the edge, exactly what needs to move through you in order for you to have that faith of the burden, move into what is next for you. There's something calling you. There's something, maybe, you've, maybe you walked in here knowing what that is, that there's something more for you to do or be. Maybe you don't even know yet, but you will. The first question that you get to ask yourself is this. Oh, Zen quote, I've got to give you because it really makes the point about the birds. In Zen, there's a saying, move and the way will open. Move and the way will open. It doesn't say the way will open and then if you feel so called, you can move. Ernest Holmes said it another way. Treat, treat, treat and move your feet. We have a role to play. Here's three questions you can use to bring yourself to the edge with clarity of where you are right now uh, with that sense of uncertainty, knowing that there's something more for you to do or be, that you're impelled to do it. Hopefully from inspiration, but even from desperation, the same principle applies. Here's the first question you have to ask yourself. What role does fear play in keeping me stuck on the ledge? What role does fear play in keeping me stuck? And again, this afternoon, we're going to explore these through self-inquiry, a lot of some journaling and some deep work. And the, the, here's the reality about fear. Most of us think of fear as an enemy. But the reality is, uh, you know, we, we've made uh, fear a bad guy. Fear is not a bad thing. We just have to understand how to understand it. Okay? I mean, without some fear in our lives, most of us wouldn't have made it into adulthood. It kept us from doing some stupid things. Yes? And here's the problem, though. Somewhere along the line between the time we were young and the time we, where we sit today in the this, this sanctuary is the border, the line between what to fear and what not to fear became blurred. And so we dragged on, around with us into our adult lives a lot of fears that have no basis except for the life that we've breathed into them. And one of the fears, like children, they grow up. You know, children are not, are, are not born with, they only give them, born with two natural fears. One is fear of falling, and the other is the fear of loud noises. Every other fear that we have, we've acquired. Take a deep breath. We learned it. It was not part of our inherent natural being. And, and one of the fears, the greatest fears as we grow is, you know, with children, the metaphor is the fear of darkness. And that darkness can be a metaphor for uncertainty, that when we stand on the edge, we don't know what's out there, but we know there's something out there and there's something within us that's calling, keeping us from leaning into it. You notice when you're facing those moments of uncertainty in your lives where your mind does a great job of scampering off into the ethers of the darkness and creating all kinds of excuses and boogeymen and reasons not to go forward. We have to learn how to respond to our fears rather than react to them. Have you ever heard the acronym for fear, false evidence appearing real? i got a far better one than that for you. Forget everything and run! 
which is what we do, isn't it? When something scary pops in front, up in front of us, we go unconscious, and we spin metaphorically, if not literally, and we run from it. We withdraw from it. Some of us run to the refrigerator, the medicine cabinet, the liquor cabinet, the shopping mall. We do a lot. There's a lot of barges that we can take down the river of denial. But the problem is we have to come back at some point. And when we do, our fear is waiting there for us like a loyal puppy dog. Okay? Can we pick up where we left off before you took your trip? Welcome back. <laughs> so so the, there's three touchstones touch touch about fear. I'll give you real quickly now. We're going to dig into them this afternoon. The first touchstone you have to understand about fear is you can run, but you can't hide. You can run from every fear you got, but you can't hide. And most of us do a great job of running, as I just explained. But what I mean by that is that your fear isn't out there someplace. You get that? It's not out there hiding behind the corner waiting for you to jump out so, it can, so you can go there and it can jump out and scare you. Fear is something that lives within you, and something out there stimulates that fear within us to arise. And, we have to be, and that's the first step to becoming proactive with our fear rather than reactive to it. As I understand, you can't run from it. The second thing you have to understand about fear is all fear is attached to a concern of death, of something, concern of loss. Maybe it could be a legitimate concern like a fear of death of your body or the death of a loved one, but it could also be a fear of death of a career or lifestyle or home ownership or, or a title or a reputation or all the different things that go into uh, creating the, the dynamics of a challenging life. Okay? And again, it's not that, that these fears are not real. It's understanding, which is the third touchstone, is understanding that we can approach the fears consciously and literally embrace them and allow them to be our teacher if we're willing to stand toe-to-toe with them. And as they say in the East, you stand toe-to-toe with the beast and you dance with it. We're going to dance with our fears this afternoon. Okay? And in the process of doing that, your, fear has something, your fears are one of the greatest teachers you have. But we dial out and we don't allow them to teach us. How many fears did you walk in here today with? How are you breathing right now? I ask that question in my workshops and sometimes they'll say, in and out. <sighs> I'm talking about consciously, how, how, where's your breath? See, and we'll talk about that this afternoon. Conscious breathing is a great way to presence yourself, which is where you get to dance with your fear in a conscious, proactive way. Very powerful. So the second question is this, that you get to ask yourself when you're standing on the edge of uncertainty, you have to ask yourself this question, and it's twofold. The first part of the question is, what do I need to let go of? Sometimes it's, who do I need to let go of? But what do I need to let go of, and when do I need to let it go? Here, here's the, the secret that you may or may not be aware of if you want to identify what it is you need to let go of. Some of us walked in here really clear on something we need to let go of in our lives in order to move on. But if we listen to the stories that we tell over and over and over again, the things we talk about habitually over and over and over again, you'll, you'll, you'll learn that there's something, in the, a nugget in that story that discerns exactly what it is you get to let go of if you want to move forward. Oftentimes it's based on something that happened in the past, <clears throat> victimitis, he did, she did, they did, or it's a fear that could projects us off into the future somewhere where we have absolutely no control. 
So in this process of asking ourselves what I need to, what does I need to let go of, if we're li- willing to listen to our stories, they'll tell us exactly where to look if we're conscious enough to do that. <coughs> One of the challenges with telling your stories over and over and over again is that the more you tell them, the more the universe takes you seriously. And the more you tell your stories over and over and over again, the more it gets deeply rutted in your own consciousness, and the universe can only support you in the stories that you claim is the truth about yourself. And so we have to become conscious of the stories we're telling, and will tell us what to let go of. You get me? And you know what? It's not, and we tell our stories often enough, and they begin to define who we are in the world. And that becomes who we are. It's not always bad things either. Sometimes it's the good things in the, from the past that we need to let go of, if they, if they keep us from moving forward. I had uh, 20 years, 20 year, you may have remembered old Stan, uh, elderly gentleman, about 90 years old, back in the Masonic Lodge. He'd, he came to church every Sunday, dressed just to the nines with a suit and tie, and had a little nat, uh, hat. He was just a really, really present wonderful guy, 90 years old. He came to me for counseling one day, and he said, listen, I need some help. My beautiful wife of 65 years died five years ago, and, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm really ready for another relationship. I want to get back in the game. i got more to give. Talk about an optimist there, yeah? <laughs> and he said, I have no problems getting dates. I have no problem with it, but those, date, those ladies will date me once or twice, and, and then they won't see me again. And I'm, it's, I'm brokenhearted about it. And I want to know what do I, what do I, what's going on here. I need some help. Will you please come sit, sit, come to my house, sit with me, and talk? We had dinner. I went to his house. He had served me dinner. There's no sooner five minutes into the conversation that became very clear what was what the reason was behind his not abil- his inability to c- continue to date the same woman more than two or three times. He talked about nothing other than his beloved, deceased wife. And as he talked more and more about her, a second level of the story came to be. That was a story about her. Not just that he was lonely, but about her. And I looked around the house, and I saw that he had turned it into a, muse- a, a, a mausoleum dedicated to her. Clothes still hanging, her clothes in the closet. Pictures on all the walls. He still wore a wedding band. And I saw all this, and I pointed out to him. I said, Stan, what you're doing is you're, t- you're giving the universe a message. You're telling the universe that there's no space. There's, n- there's no room for anything new because you're clinging to what was rather than what can be, to be open to what can be. And he got that. And I could tell he was saddened by that, but he also got it, that it was time to let her go. And uh, we did some prayer work, and I'm pretty sure that it, was, it worked. Because about six months later, I ran into Stan in the grocery store, walking arm in arm with Bernice, his fiance. <laughs> so that, the, the point, and that's a true story. But the point is this: all of us have some story, something that we're holding on to, whether it's good or bad. Something that's keeping us from coming to the edge to open ourselves to what can be, what, what's what's in, in that which is yet to be, to open to a greater, larger expression of who we've come here to be. And so maybe the question is that we have to ask ourselves is this. Who would I be? See, we've defined ourselves by our stories. Who would I be without this fill-in-the-blank? Who would I be without this job, without this person, without this victimhood? Who would I be without this title? Who would I be without all these things? And we peel away the layer 
We get all the layers of the onion, which we're going to do this afternoon, and we discover that who you would be. If you, could you imagine what your life might look like today if, if in the beginning you began to define yourself as a spiritual being? Come here to have that human experience? Yeah. So, in the Tao Te Ching, there's a beautiful, beautiful saying, and I would invite you to emblazon this in your heart. When I let go of what I am, I become what I can be. When I let go of what I have, I receive what I need. How are you breathing? See, this is about coming to the edge. The third question that you can ask yourself, and I'll move quick because I know we're running out of time. The, uh, this is where we drop kick the, the, the whole thing through the goalposts of life. And the question is this. Do I take time daily to contemplate the miracle of the mystery of the gift that's already been given to me? Which is life. And am I honoring the giver of the gift by how I am unfolding and evolving my life? In other words, am I just existing and and enduring until I leave the planet? Or have I taken the gift that has been so preciously given to me, and am I unfolding it, growing with it, expanding with it, continually allowing that life to become that beacon by means of which I project myself into a larger experience of expressing the divinity that I am? A gift of human life is a profound and precious gift. It is a pearl of great price, and we take it for granted. When was the last time you sat and contemplated the gift that you have been given? See, you're in an amazing spiritual community to help discover or rediscover that gift and learn how to give it purpose. And when we enter into self-inquiry at that level, we enter into what the the Native Americans call uh, exploring the mystery of the miracle, the three miracles. There's three miracles to explore. Here's the first one. The first miracle is that anything exists. That's surface-level self-inquiry. Wow, this exists. You walk out at night, you look up in the stars, you see these stars, the planets all in order. It's a miracle that all that exists. It's a miracle. The second miracle is, that we seldom contemplate, is that living things exist. When was the last time you sat with a rose bush and just simply contemplated the life force within that rose bush and watched it as it unfolds its beauty without anybody telling it how to do it? And the third miracle, of course, is the miracle that living things exist that know they exist. That would be you and me. And when we awaken to self-inquiry at that level, we begin to ask the question, who am I? Why am I here? What am I doing here? In that moment, something stirs within us and we begin to experience purpose and meaning. And that's the moment when we consciously, are, when our doing, our human level, you know, life on the human plane merges with our being which is that sacred presence of God. And we merge our, our doing with our being. Every moment becomes a spiritual experience. And that is where we find purpose. Your purpose is not going to be found 10 years down the road when everything's in order. 
Your purpose is always standing right in front of you in every given moment. And again, we'll explore this this afternoon. You weren't put here just to suck air and jam stuff down your pie hole. (laughs) You're put here to give meaning and expression to life and to individuate the divine one. That's your mission. And here, here's, uh, and I'll close with this quote by Richard Bach, great uh, book, Illusions. Here's a, here's a test to know whether your mission, your mission on earth is complete. If you're alive, it isn't. Put your fingers on your pulse. Are you, are you alive? Are you breathing? Shake the neighbor next to you. Are they alive? Say, you still have purpose and mission here. Go ahead, tell your neighbor. You still have purpose and mission. And the question is, are you conscious of it or are you living in it? And see, this is the point of this book, The Art of Uncertainty. It's the point of this workshop this afternoon. It's the purpose, the point of my ministry now is to call people to the edge. And I close with this quote by Guillaume Apollinaire, a wonderful French mystic poet. Come to the edge, he said. They said, no, we're afraid. Come to the edge, he said. They came. He pushed them. They flew. Come to the edge. There is something more for you to do, to be, or you would not be here. And when you dive into that consciously, you will just truly discover what it means to live in the mystery of life and love it. That is why you're here. Come to the edge. Namaste.